0: If theism were really true, there's no reason for God to be hard to find. He should be perfectly obvious, whereas in naturalism, you might expect people believe in God, but the evidence to be thin on the ground. Under theism, you'd expect that religious beliefs should be universal. There's no reason for God to give special messages to this or that primitive tribe thousands of years ago. Why not give it to anyone? Whereas under naturalism, you'd expect different religious beliefs inconsistent with with each other to grow up under different local conditions. Under theism, you'd expect religious doctrines to last a long time in a stable way. Under naturalism, you'd expect them to adapt to social conditions. Under theism, you'd expect the moral teachings of religion to be transcendent, progressive, sexism is wrong, slavery is wrong. Under naturalism, you'd expect that they reflect, once again, local mores, sometimes good rules, sometimes not so good. You'd expect the sacred texts under theism to give us interesting information. Tell us about the germ theory of disease. Tell us to wash our hands before we have dinner.
1: The gentleman you just heard is Dr. Sean Carroll, a preeminent world-class cosmologist who does not believe God exists. It is perfectly fine, of course, for a cosmologist to have an opinion about the existence of God, but when the general public hears such statements as Dr. Carroll has made, it gives the appearance that such statements have the backing of modern science. They do not. There are no papers in physics or cosmology which define the nature and characteristics of God. To rule God out of the equation, as Dr. Carroll has attempted, one would need to make certain assumptions about the nature of God and what the evidence for his handiwork would be. We have been fascinated with the universe as long as we have existed. It is a timeless aspect of our existence to contemplate the beauteous arrangement of the stars above us and wonder what it all means. And for the last hundred years or so, it would appear that modern cosmology has come full circle to the ancient wisdom found in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. This is part one of a review of a debate that took place between Christian philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig and cosmologist Dr. Sean Carroll in 2014. In this debate, Dr. Craig defends the position that the beginning of our universe, as known by the data from contemporary cosmology, is best explained by the existence of God. I review the debate with physicist and author James Sinclair, who both participated in the debate and assisted Dr. Craig in preparation for it. James has published several essays and papers on the topic of cosmology and theism. Now, this is not your typical video review. James and I take a creative and imaginative approach, as well as a scientific one, in examining in greater detail Dr. Carroll's claims put forth in the debate. In part one, we examine some assumptions and storylines in popular science fiction. We hear from Carl Sagan's daughter, Sasha, about her iconic father's film, Contact, and outline the basics of the Kalam cosmological argument. Thank you for joining me, James. It is nice to see you finally. We have uh, chatted on the internet, uh, low on and off, through Twitter and email, and now we finally get to meet somewhat face-to-face, thanks to the wonderful technology of Zoom. Whoever founded Zoom must be a millionaire by now, and I anticipate, I predict, that the founder of Zoom will be going to space in some point in the near future. What do you say? (laughs)
2: <laughs> hey it's uh, it's great to finally meet you as well and we're all experts on zoom now after uh COVID year we so are we we're are. we're kind of used to this thing where we're talking to each other over over uh iphone screens right right but, but yeah it's been uh uh a long time glad i'm finally uh, with you
1: yeah everybody that's got a billion dollars is building a rocket these
2: days I think about <laughs> space travel, especially the the. Uh, it's one of the great things that's going. It, it, we complain a lot about modern society. You know, mm-hmm. people from different political perspectives have their own issues, but that's one of the great things about it. Yeah, is um, uh, you know, one of the great. You, know, you just click something in my mind. Go for it. We're always in this, we're always in this debate, in modern society, about okay, we're spending money on space travel or something. Why aren't we taking that money and putting it into healthcare or something to relieve suffering? And I remember uh, the NASA director from the 70s was uh, testifying before Congress on that once. And he said something to the effect I'm going to paraphrase there's, there's reasons why we have to dream about things. Hmm. We have to be more than just surviving hmm. on planet Earth. Survival is not enough. Yeah. Okay. So it's important to do that. But um, space travel is one of the things that e- expands uh, who we are as uh, sentient beings. Hmm. And I wonder about the universe is one of the prime things that does that. So I absolutely, let's go into orbit. I'm, I'm glad that the, this competition is going on between Elon yeah. and Musk. Uh, was it Bezos, I guess? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, and um, yeah, so, well, let's that's see. That's fantastic. A my lifetime. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and you know, too, James. I think the expenditures that uh, people with, um, we would call it disposable income, I suppose, um, that that people, and not just Jeff and uh, Elon. Um, I don't know them. I'm just using their first names. It just sounds much more cozy. To call them mm-hmm. Jeff and Elon, right? Going at it. Uh, I think the the expenditure. would go back to Apollo missions and uh, missions to Saturn, missions to Jupiter. We love pictures from space. Everybody was frantically worried about the Hubble being broken, right? That the the, the uh, it has something like an Atari 2600 computer on board. Of course, it was made in 1990, and it shut down. But they got it going again in the last couple of weeks. But we were very concerned, poor Hubble. I mean, what are we going to do about pretty pictures when I when I went to Google galaxies and Hubble is dead? What am I going to? I, I can't wait for James Webb. I got to have my Hubble, right? But but we we expend a ton of money uh, exploring the universe. You have a wonderful sign behind you there. It, it, follow the path. Right. And, and so so human beings for for centuries millennia, as long as we've had eyes to look up on the sky, we've been following the path. What in the world does the cosmos mean and what's our place in it? And when we have the money and the time, what 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 do we do? We want to go there. We want to be a part of it. And, and I know that when you uh, scientists go before Congress and ask for money for space exploration, um. You know, the plea is always, we want to know more about the cosmos. We want to know more about ourselves. Uh, there's an intrinsic connection that we assume uh, to be very vital, as you say, to go beyond survival. Um, our our connection to the cosmos, we have this deep desire to know what it means and to be connected to whatever that means. And, of course, as Christians, you know, we go to the Bible. This is exactly very ancient... Uh, A thing that that we're going to talk about this book today, uh, the 2014 debate, of which you were part with uh, Dr. Uh, Sean Carroll and William Lane Craig, we're going to talk about that. But in the book, uh, Bob Stewart, who uh, chaired the lecture uh, and who moderated, um, opens up with a psalm, a couple of psalms. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and Psalm 8, David is looking up at the heavens and he says, what is man that you're mindful of, of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so it, there's this intimate connection that we have in contemplating the cosmos. But uh today so I say all that James because uh as we've been talking today we're going to chat about the, the debate. And Dr. Carroll and I thought we, we could start with this question and Dr. Carroll's opening statement in this debate. He he makes let me make sure that I get this correctly. I don't want to uh I don't want to uh misquote him. Um it's he says You would expect, under theism, for life to play a special role in the universe. Under naturalism, you would expect life to be very insignificant. I hope I don't need to tell you that life is very insignificant as far as the universe is concerned.
0: You would expect under theism that the particles and parameters of particle physics would be enough to allow life to exist and have some structure that was designed for some reason, whereas under naturalism you'd expect them to be kind of random and a mess. Guess what? They are kind of random and a mess. You would expect under theism life to play a special role in the universe. Under naturalism you'd expect life to be very insignificant. I hope I don't need to tell you life is very insignificant as far as the universe is concerned. Now, that's not a cosmological statement. That's not a scientific
1: statement. That is a metaphysical and philosophical statement about human ontology and the cosmos that has no justifiable grounds for uh, being called science,
2: Uh, right? What do you think of that statement, James? Well, you can see right off how – why are people interested in this? Because the stakes are high. Mm. Do we matter or, or don't we? And I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I mean, even under atheism, it, uh, you know, by the way, you get 10 atheists, you'll get 11 opinions. And that's not a mm-hmm. criticism of them. Right. I'm just saying there's atheists of all varieties. Yeah. Okay. So there are some like, that's the Hawking. Well, Hawking was kind of like that too. Mm-hmm. That were insignificant. And therefore, how dare we do this to the environment or whatever. It, it, it leads right. to a, a worldview. Uh, so on the other hand, one thing that's worth pointing out is I'm, by the way, I'm a natural contrarian. So I'm naturally thinking, what are the things that oppose the thing that you just said? Okay. So I'm sure. thinking, are there, and I'm trying to think of both sides of the argument and Christians have been accused of saying that, that we're the center of the universe also. And, uh, uh, and that uh, we thought that throughout history, and that's actually not true either. Uh, the uh, through the uh, the whole Ptolemaic controversy uh, hmm. and uh, it, what was really taught under that philosophy, we never, it was never taught that the Earth was the center of the universe in hmm. terms of being uh, a uh, place that, a glorification of it. Right. Rather, it was the, that it was the lowest point in the Ptolemaic uh, controversy was there <laughs> yeah so we, we so but we get that accusation so we, uh, christians weren't exactly so I, I don't want to agree with either extreme that dr carroll just said and say that if you're a religious believer a christian or let's say the other abrahamic uh faiths that it's that you're saying you're the center of the universe and you're very important and that that's it doesn't teach that it really mm. teaches ability generally uh, an atheist i don't want to pigeonhole him into that position either thinking well, you have to be worthless if uh if there was no god uh, mm. the um, so i i have a problem with that i have a you can see the interesting thing about dr carroll can i talk about the debate in a more general sense absolutely wherever you want to go james because i had this thought when we were preparing for this debate that this is going to come off different. I, I was kind of thinking of it like if I was on Dr. Carroll's team, how would I face this debate? And this was significant because I was helping to prepare on the theistic side. and said, like, well, what should they be saying? And Dr. Carroll brought Tim Maudlin, who's one of the foremost philosophers of time in the world, mm. to a debate about the Kalam argument, where one of the most significant aspects of that is the nature of time. Mm-hmm. And then didn't talk about that topic at all. And I said, What are we doing? Or you bring the foreman, and Dr. Craig is one of the foremost philosophers of the time, also. You bring them both together on the same, similar state, same state, and you don't talk about this. And then Dr. Carroll, okay, so he's there. What he's, okay, if I, I'm in charge of team atheism, and I'm saying, Dr. Carroll is one of the foremost cosmologist in the world, maybe the greatest living cosmologist. I want him up there talking about the cosmology. Now, is it okay for him to talk about the philosophy? Absolutely. Uh, Just like Dr. Craig talks about the physics, and he's not a cosmologist. So, but Dr. Carroll ended up basing his case about the Kalam argument. I guess I'm getting ahead of you here. No, this is great. this is just a thought that I've got. I've said, uh, Dr. Carroll made his main case against the cosmological argument that dr craig and i defend based on philosophy and his views of causation and whether causation really exists in
0: the real world whether you can make meaningful statements about it the universe is different than our everyday experience that doesn't sound like a surprising statement but we really need to take it to heart To look at a modern cosmological model and say, yes, but what was the cause, It's like looking at someone taking pictures with an iPhone and saying, but where does the film go? It's not that the answer is difficult or inscrutable, it's completely the wrong question to be asking. And in fact, it's a little technical, most of uh, my second talk here, but I think it's worth getting it right. Why should we expect that there are causes or explanations or reason why in the universe in which we live. It's because the physical world inside of which we're embedded has two important features. There are unbreakable patterns, laws of physics, things don't just happen, they obey the laws, and there is an arrow of time stretching from the past to the future. The entropy was lower in the past, increases toward the future. Therefore, when you find some event or state of affairs B today, we can very often trace it back in time to one or a couple of possible predecessor events that we therefore call the cause of that, which leads to be according to the laws of physics. But crucially, both of these features of the universe that allow us to speak the language of causes and effects are completely absent when we talk about the universe as a whole. Therefore, nothing gives us the right to demand some kind of external cause. The idea that our intuitions about cause and effect that we get from the everyday experience of the world in this room should somehow be extended without modification to the fundamental nature of reality is fairly absurd. And statements
2: like the one that you just read. Oh, we're insignificant versus Mm -hmm. significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, I had the chance to meet uh, uh, him at the debate. He's a great
1: guy. He Uh, is a very
2: nice gentleman. Yeah. I wonder if he lives his life like that. (laughs) Do you live your life like you're insignificant? Right, (laughs) right, right. Uh, What's if you put the test of uh, uh, how do you actually live your life? Um, so um, I guess that's worth thinking about, but I have problems with that statement from many different directions. I guess. Yes. Yeah. But it I, it, it I,
1: is. It's not something that you can you can look at the entire. If we had the ability to look at the entire universe and all of its beauty and the arrangement and the the chaotic sort of things that we are, we're finding and uncovering in the universe, um, if we could survey all of that and have all of that data available to us, that still does not speak one iota to the nature of human existence and the significance of human existence. Because on the one hand, it's, it's kind of ironic, James, on the one hand we think we're insignificant but think about this, if a Martian probe found a microbe of life somewhere in the Martian soils deep within or something like that you're not going to get anything but people saying this is the most significant discovery in all of cosmology and astronomy. We have found life on Mars. And we would hail that. If we could, we'd give that little microbe a ticker tape parade. I don't know if they do ticker tapes anymore, but we'd parade them through the streets of New York. We, If we could bring it back to Earth, we would put it in the Smithsonian and everybody would be going, ooh, life on another planet your religion is destroyed you know look at us you know now you're gonna to have to rethink your theology but isn't that interesting though james we find some bacteria on mars and that's super significant we look at ourselves and we go not very significant i find that to be
2: well yeah because that's a political thing to some degree and i don't want to get into politics but it's absurd. no i don't either but it's uh about the significance of man on earth and and uh what you should be permitted to do uh, with mm-hmm. that. But we'll go into it. But yeah, look, let me just get into your point. You know, you have to, you know, like the movie contact, right? If we heard a message from deep space and we discovered that we weren't alone. We would find that very significant. Yes, we would. And yeah. the atheists would be thinking that through with their philosophy as much as, uh, we Christians and Muslims and Jews and other religious believers,
1: but, we sure would.
2: Um, and it wouldn't, uh, I guess you'd be struggling. Is this objective? So yeah, we're asking, is this objectively significant or just subjective? Well, it's kind of, not, yeah, I, I, I think it'd be objectively interesting if the universe was full <laughs> right, of beings out there, which is why so much of our literature and our science fiction and our movies and everything where we're just in love with that subject.
1: We are. We absolutely yeah. are. I mean, if you look at the stretch of Hollywood going from, Uh, The early 20th century, H.G. Wells, all the way to Steven Spielberg and, uh, um, you know, George Lucas. Um, Are we, you know, at at some point we have this theme where the aliens hate us and they want to kill us. And then we have the benevolent alien. Uh, You know, Contact is definitely a benevolent alien. We have E.T., benevolent alien. We have Star Wars with some benevolence and malevolence going on. Um, And so, you know, in our minds, we've had about a century or more if you want to argue, of, of, of scientific literature, uh, science fiction, which, you know, Star Trek, you name it, it's just crazy popular um, in our culture today. We are primed to think about this. And now we have the government report coming out about UFOs. We have more government transparency about unknown objects. And this continues to be a fascinating subject. Whatever those are, as you say... What is what would be would it would be objectively significant or is it subjectively significant um, in terms of what that would mean? Interesting point about cosmos or uh, contact that I'll I'll share with you. Just are you a Star
2: Trek fan by any chance? Uh,
1: I am, but I'm not as uh, you know. I, when I was in kindergarten, I had the James T. Kirk Star Trek stuff, and I my dad watched Star Trek, and I probably have as a child have seen all the episodes because dad watched it religiously. Um, but I, I'm not as an adult. I did not develop my um, a formidable uh, techie vocabulary. But I'm I'm pretty conversant in Star Trek lore. So. They had an episode
2: that was really poignant in the original series, which gets right to this topic. Would it be significant? Is it significant to have someone else in the universe?
3: Mm. It
2: wasn't about you know? Of course, in Star Trek. You're you're in spaceships and you're visiting space, but it wasn't about visiting other planets. The one episode they had they had two episodes. Uh, one of it where the there was a prison that they were visiting, and the prisoners get loose, and mayhem results from that. But, but yeah. one of the episodes, there was a uh, a device that um, it's almost like a hypnotism device, which, which would allow the manipulator of the person in the chair who was uh, hooked up to it that you could put thoughts into their head and and, and almost mm-hmm. control what Uh, who they are and what they're doing if if you abuse this device and uh, in the end of the episode the bad guy by accident ends up in the chair and the device is on and by accident and so he's like under the control of it only nobody's talking to him and he literally goes insane because there's not someone even a torturer in his world with him to talk to him And so that really makes the point really powerfully is that he preferred having someone else in his universe with him, even Mm. if it was a bad guy, Mm. just so he wouldn't go insane. And and, Mm. and I wonder if if uh, if if we did detect another civilization and you don't know yet whether they're malevolent or whether they don't even care about you at all. Right. Or 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 they're nice. They're they're going to come here and cure cancer or something. Um, you don't even know yet but just the the thrill would be of knowing that they're out there and we're not alone mm. it's, it's that part of the, we really we're really are social beings we're not meant to be alone
1: right well and you know even when Carl Sagan I I had the wonderful privilege a couple of years ago of talking to Carl Sagan's daughter Sasha a wonderful conversation just to uh I mean she's 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 written a book called for small creatures such as we, which is an extended thinking about the loss of her dad and trying to find meaning in the universe. And she's not a, a theist, but I think she's, she's at least, she doesn't identify as an atheist, very similar to her father in this regard in terms of, I don't want to wear that label because I find atheist to be too acerbic and, you know, maybe I'm agnostic or I'm not sure, but she's very delightful, but very unsettled on the, on the god question but but we just had a chat about her dad and uh, you know she, obviously she's not representing her dad's scientific mind but she told me a wonderful story about contact a bit about uh contact you are alexandra in the preface correct? yes, yes. Is,
4: you, you sasha wanted... is the russian sasha is the russian diminutive for alexandra my father's father was born in ukraine um yeah so we i was i i my my real name is alexandra but everyone calls me sasha
1: Well, that was really cool to know because I didn't know for the, I like contact. I really do. And I actually like the book better than the movie. So, uh, your mom and dad worked on it. I
4: feel like that happens with books and movies. Yeah. And
1: And your mom and dad worked on this together. Is that correct?
4: Absolutely. So they, they started out, they wanted it to be a movie. They, they saw it as a movie Mm -hmm. and you know, movies take really long time to make. Um, some more than others, but this one took 18 years and, um, from when they started working on it till it premiered, and um, my dad died while while they were in production, so he never oh, saw I didn't know the that. movie. Yeah, oh. and it premiered in the summer of, of 1997, and he died in December of '96, mm. so he never saw it. But um the in the like while they were trying to get this movie made, um, you know, because it's like a movie takes thousands of people. It's an amazing thing. It's mm. like. It is, it's just i mean it takes thousands of people you know in production but also just it to, to get it funded to get it greenlit it's just such a long process Anyway, so in the time it took um they wrote the novel and um and yes they everything that they wrote when in the time that they were together they wrote together and you know um it's 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 really interesting because as i write the, the title of my book Comes from a line in, in Contact, yes. and um, it's actually a line that my mom wrote, um, and mm. it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it, that's one of my favorite lines that your father has ever written. But with the the love, the yeah. Um, in our, but just this is an aside. Uh, yeah, I, I the book that I co-authored and edited. We both. I noticed as I was reading your book, you mentioned the Subaru and the Pleiades. Mm-hmm. I did. I did too in my introduction. Talk talk. Oh, that's
4: so funny. So that was
1: fun. Um, but, um, in relation to contact, I had a couple of thoughts that sort of came together as I was reading your book. And one of them, uh, this goes along with what you said at the end of page 235, which I thought was, uh, wonderful. Hello. I have my talking about, here. Yeah, the there you go. So you're, <laughs> you wanted to, you were talking about, uh, a wonderful paragraph there at the end, the second mm. paragraph, maybe at the stroke of midnight on the longest night of the year, we imagined We'd slip into our room gently, wake them up by whispering into their little ears, we have something wonderful, something epic, something thrilling to tell you, something so large and magnificent that no human being can stop it. Uh, you know, starting tomorrow, the days will get longer again, and slowly the plants will bloom again, and the sunshine will return, and summer is coming and that's so hopeful yeah. and it's so it's so touching, but it, it reminded me precisely of the last couple of chapters of contact where especially especially moving is where ellie you know meets her her you know, father um, yes
4: in a way right yeah. in a
1: way you know uh, mm-hmm. he had called her from the stars and she had come it was this it was as if her father had these many years ago died and gone to heaven and finally by this unorthodox route she had managed to rejoin him and she sobbed and embraced him again and i thought there was a wonderful correlation between the the kind of hope you express in your book and the kind of hope that your dad seemed to have, where you touch upon this concept of immortality and, and being reunited again. And there seems to yeah. be that, that dialectical tension in your writing and the writing of your father, where you have this sort of hope of immortality in one sense. But what do you, we always speak I, to that, I, I don't want to read into way. it.
4: no, no. I think of it this way. You know, it's, it's, this is a major theme in the history of our species. Yeah. This, uh, and we have, have such I was talking about my sort of fascination with death as a child, but I think that that is, I mean, that goes across our entire species through the, throughout the history of time. Maybe other species too. It's 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 the thing we wrestle with the most. Uh,
1: the Jodie Foster character. Was uh, f- dedicated to uh, was about Jill Tarter who runs. I don't know if she's still at the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence in in California. I think she's still with SETI, but she was one of the leading proponents of, of SETI and was at SETI for a long time. If she's not still there already, but so that book and I met Jill Tarter in San Francisco, and Seth Shostak, the two leading proponents of of SETI in 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 the world today. Um, but Sasha, you know, told me that that the contact the it was written. So, so Andrewian and Carl, the, you know, they, wrote the, they were writing the screenplay uh, and it became a book before it became a movie, which was really interesting and I didn't know that. But one of the things that I found and I still find fascinating about Contact. So here's Carl Sagan, a brilliant scientific mind, um, writing, basically creating his own universe. Um, you know, he's very passionate about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but he also admitted there's no evidence for it. But in his book, how does he write this? You know, spoiler alert. The Jodie Foster character goes through this wormhole and appears on the other side of it in a fetal position, all cuddled up in a sort of paradise, and and meets her father in the heavens. And it's like, okay, Carl, you have all kinds of different alien possibilities in your creative mindset, and you come up with a heavenly father? (laughs) Now, it's not the ultimate alien, it's not the so that the alien says, "Look, I'm just I'm just an image of your dad to make you feel comfortable." It's a benevolent alien theme, but he's just like, "Look, we we discovered this wormhole kind of mechanism that's been here long before we were here. We're not the top dog in whatever this place is." So your mind is drawn fascinatingly to beyond. Wow! So there's like some archaeological cosmology going on here. What's going on? Who are these beings? They're obviously super intelligent, but how about that, James? That 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 the contact would have this. You know, to me, the Sagans could have made up anything, and they make up this uh, this heavenly well, father. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that reminds me of uh, the Matrix movies, where the Neo character is who, he's basically the Jesus Christ character. Right. He gives himself, he sacrifices his own life for yeah. uh, his people. Uh, so there's, the, the, that shows up a lot in science fiction as mm-hmm. well. That's something that's endemic to our thinking. Yeah. Uh, the right. Yeah.
1: We need a, a, like a, that Star Trek journey, episode. A journey to
2: atonement, a journey to salvation. Right. And self-sacrifice, like, uh, was it in, is it in the book of John where Jesus talks about, uh, you know, the greatest love is to give your life for yeah. you know, your fellows. So,
1: Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And so that is interesting. We find this theme. I just did a wonderful sh- uh, podcast with Dr. Louis Marcos of Houston Baptist. And he's written a book called Myth Made Fact, uh, following in the footsteps of Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, finding Christological themes in the Greco-Roman mythologies, uh, so as, as bridge-building like Paul did in Athens and Mars Hill. And I think there's a tremendous uh, rich field to mine in our own modern mythologies of science fiction. As you say, follow the path to conflict, to uh, resolution and sacrifice. Uh, in, in the cosmic world. You know, C.S. Lewis had this thought that if you're going to do a space, if you're going to do space, or if you're going to do a science fiction, uh, work of science fiction, you need to have as the character, you need to have the universe be a significant character. You just can't uh, have a love story on the moon. Well, you don't need the moon for that. Lewis says, if you're going to have something going on out there, you need to have it be relevant to why it's out there, not just as, as a green screen. Behind you in our language, and I think he's absolutely right. And what he's saying is that the fabric of our creation is 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 not just a backdrop to, backdrop to our existence, but as a, as a pointer to something far greater than 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 just ourselves or the scenery, right?
2: Yeah. So, Interstellar is one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies. So, and there there. The universe is definitely on display as a character in many yeah. different ways and it is a love story but it's a father-daughter love story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really poignant where in the end he goes back and because of the time difference because of relativity he's now younger than his daughter and she's on her deathbed when he finally finally keeps his promise to come back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so it's it's a we can't escape this this moving narrative that we have even the Marvel movies I mean they're not necessarily well they are cosmic I mean these are beings from oh, by the way world. sorry
2: for the spoiler alert if you haven't seen Interstellar I'll
1: put that <laughs> I'll put that dis, I'll put the disclaimer in the notes I'll say spoiler alert if you don't want to watch if you don't know the ending of some of these movies don't watch this um, I love but, the soundtrack
2: uh, for that also
1: yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful yeah. well you know you you have the perfect thing there you have beautiful imagery you have a moving story you have compelling music it's art in and of itself, the cinematography is art, and 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 so encapsulated in that oh, a movie that is well done or a story that is well told is set decoration, right? Shakespeare was brilliant at this. You know, he could do this. That that the best stories have the best atmosphere, the best drama, the the best arrangement, the music or whatever. Um, and uh, I can't. I'm still moved by Star Wars music. You know, it's like wow. I mean, Williams. Anything John Williams does, you know, if you, it's just amazing. I fire up Indiana Jones in the car whenever I'm kind of down. I'm like, turn this dun da, dun 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 dun. You know, I mean, it's not a space movie, but it's it's still you're it's a cosmic battle, good and evil, right? The, the Jones, you're just like go, right? He's he's pretty yeah. much like the Harrison Ford character in Star Wars, the Maverick who just saves the universe to some degree. So we have this woven in here. So we say all this to say in in reference to Carol's. Point that we are inconsequential seems quite contrary to our own creative expression, not to mention expenditures
2: in relation to yeah. our relationship with the universe. It just seems his to be. Point is, his point is not wrong or stupid or right? anything. I can see where that like, thinking that might be the first thing you're going to think. Okay, because if we did, if, if religious believers really did take the view that I'm fabulous, I'm at the top of the heap. Yeah, because we're not right. Love, And then you suddenly discovered there was no God. What's your immediate thought is I'm insignificant. What does that mean? Yes. So Mm -hmm. if you're following a path to atheism, and as I said, there's many different atheists who come from many different Mm -hmm. perspectives. You don't have to go that route. I can see why you'd get there and you'd want to explore that. Yeah. So I'm not saying, Hey, you're just wrong. But I I just wouldn't agree with that. Even if I were an atheist.
1: Yeah. And because it, it, there's no even even if you reason abductively as a skeptic there's still no solid justification for making that inference because really what it is James is an argument from size right i 'm small well i 'm pretty small in relation to to the state of Texas. Does that have anything to do with my significance no you know yeah, so but the
2: thing re- is what's the argument? The argument is why does God need the universe this big just to make you little humans on? It? planet right that's right and of course how do we know that the universe isn't filled with creatures um now what reasons to believe there's an argument about the uh the specialness of earth as a life site and whether we really are going to find uh, other beings but if they're so what reasons to believe would probably say is if they're there they're god created mm-hmm. because uh otherwise you ain't going to get them right to the physics right um, but so, but what i'm saying is and we'll probably get to the multiverse later. The same thing applies to the multiverse. Okay. There can be a God created multiverse and there's no reason why it has to be empty just because we haven't seen what's out there. doesn't mean that that it's empty. Uh, So even the main argument there that, okay, it's little us on earth and you need an entire big bang universe just to get one earth where there's people on it. So, uh, God wouldn't do that because he's wasting space. So I don't even, <laughs> even agree with that point. Right.
1: Well, you know, waste, yeah. James, is is only applicable to people on a budget, right? If I have a hundred dollars for groceries and I spend That's another way to think of it, yeah. I, if I spend a hundred dollars, I, I only have a hundred dollars for my groceries this week, and I go buy, uh, you know, a case of M and M's, then I'm being prodigal. But God is not on a budget. And and number two, I think that is the fallacy of the skeptical objection. Is that the fine-tuning argument? And from a scientific perspective, the fine-tuning argument has nothing to do with God, except I'm speaking purely scientifically because there are scientific materialists who accept the the the, the, the reality of the constants and quantities we find in our universe. That's uncontroversial. the The, the question that the fine-tuning thing with uh, uh, what was it? Uh, um, the two guys, the cosmological anthropic principle with uh, Barrow and Tippler. Barrow and Tipler. Of course, Tipler became a Christian out of all of that at some point. Um, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. But He's, but he has a, a very interesting way of a, looking a, at it.
1: Which is, we should probably
3: talk
2: about
1: on it. But. we can, that's another episode. But <laughs> but the point of from a from a Christian perspective, when I'm ever confronted by atheists who who use that, yeah, I can agree that 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 we 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 want to be careful of of uh, cosmographical chauvinism, right? We're special, we're overinflatedly egotistically special, right? Puff out our chests and think we can do whatever we want. That doesn't lead anywhere. But but in the Christian sense, we're special because we are image bearers of of. Of God's creation, I mean the, the value and the worth of human of humanity is that we are created in God's image, but the yeah, cosmos, that, has as much,
2: that has as much responsibility as um, objective worth also. Yeah, yeah. Right. What's the verse about? Too much to him who much is given, much is required. Right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh, the other point I want to make before we lose it because I lose my train of thought. I do it, too. You make an interesting point there about when you're in these debates. Um, you often will get the atheist will start going down a theological road, which is absolutely fine. We love talking theology.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but the moment you do that, don't give me your, um, I'm standing on a pedestal. Um, all of my knowledge is coming from science routine either. Okay. And I'm mm-hmm. saying, okay, fine. You're into theology, like the point that, well, God wouldn't make a big universe and then have one planet in it. You know, or if you're talking about, uh, biology, God wouldn't uh, have nature red in tooth and claw, or or, uh, or something like that, because uh, that's a theological statement, which we absolutely can get into these discussions about what would God do. Uh, um, but you're now you have stepped out of your authority, right? And or at the very least on uh, the same level.
1: Uh, yeah, and, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think uh, the the point about. I think the fallacy from the skeptical position is that they approach the objection with saying that, oh, you think God made the universe just for you. They, they sort of, uh, it's a straw man of, of fine tuning, even from naturalistic science, it's a straw man to, to argue that theists are arguing that the universe is all about us or all for us. But uh, I always I will eventually go to Colossians and I say, no, the universe is not primarily, that's the issue, primarily. For us, just like I use the, the example of the Burj Khalifa. Um, I mean, yes, you can go there and have a wonderful vacation, but it wasn't built for you. The primary purpose, yes, occupancy is, is one, of its, one of its purposes, but the primary purpose, I tell people when you go to the website, was built for the glory of Dubai. right? That was the A number one function was to, to, to glorify the kingdom of Dubai, uh, of the united arab emirates uh, i'm not sure politically what what the kingdom is but that's the that was the point of why that was built the secondary perhaps right following along that part of that glory is that it is inhabited and you can go there and, and enjoy the amenities that's certainly part of it but the primary goal of the burge was to declare the glory of that political entity in the middle east and i think that's the universe in some sense that primarily it yeah. was for 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 Jesus.
2: So yeah, yeah, it's not. There's more to an issue like that than just the simple idea that I mean, we're we're glorified because you made the universe. Yeah, uh, I like right. the uh, the Perelandra series by uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, it's mm-hmm. dated in terms of its science now, mm-hmm. but the philosophical ideas in it are great. I, I recommend it. Yes. And so what happens in there is that we uh, people on Earth discover a way to visit other places in space you know in in, there are other planets in C.S. Lewis's original right but you you could imagine I have an interstellar ship and I go visit somewhere and the the interesting idea there is what if you go and then you visit and it's this whole other world that God has set up and you're now interfering in someone else's uh, path to redemption you know (laughs) and uh, you're not you weren't supposed to uh, I mean, you could even imagine why did God set up relativity the way he did to make it so difficult to get anywhere? Right, and, you know, right, right. That's a possibility. Now, it does say, and "Here's a." Uh, they talk about this in the reasons to believe ministry. Sometimes it does say in Hebrews, I think, that that Jesus died once for all. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be careful with where the theology sends you. And okay, um, what does that mean with regard to other beings if they're out there? then um, I don't want to speculate <laughs> because whatever I get is probably not going to be a, a, a helpful direction, whatever speculation I come up with.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I, what I like about C.S. Lewis's idea is God could have many things going on that not only do we not know about, but we're not supposed to interfere in. Uh, and if uh, that makes for some great science fiction, what if you do? Oh, even yeah. uh, like the, the book 2061, the Arthur C. Clarke theory, you know, from 2001, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 2010, to 2061, where there's life on Europa, I think, and there's these aliens that are trying to protect it. Because that idea is there too.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so.
1: Yeah. And you wonder if, if, if not God has given us as human beings a, a natural physical boundary cordoned off literally cordoned off like the garden of eden was after the fall that we can't go back to the garden uh that we only have a certain uh physical we have certain physical limitations and parameters to our ability to to leave the planet and and to explore and it seems like to me it seems like there's a great gulf There for a reason, whatever the reasons are, if they're to protect us from other life forms or whatever the case may be, that, as you say, that would make for great science fiction. And I agree with you, because once we start speculating about Jesus and aliens, I've done series on UFOs.
2: I have no idea.
1: Yeah, right. Well, And and what I tell people when people ask me this, I say, well, when you start speculating about UFOs, you know, you are on the front doorstep of the occult. Because imagine some guy coming out with a theology about Jesus and other planets. James what are you gonna think immediately you see this internet this YouTube video uh, in fact uh, Richard carrier the Jesus mythicist historian uh, has a book coming out I don't know it's called Jesus from outer space you know and you you, you i I don't know i, I we're, we're gonna see about that but uh, but but if you if you start speculating about Jesus and aliens I- immediately alarm bells are gonna go off for any any Orthodox theologian or theist like you you're you're in the James Applewhite heaven's gate realm now when you are talking about what's jesus's relationship to other beings and then you have this whole science fiction thing that you're trying to pass off as as reality
2: and so it's it's a dealing with richard carrier is like the the turtle in the hair uh, the you know or like the uh the thing that uh, Donald Rumsfeld and probably others said a while. Known, back, unknown. That, 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 <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about the one about uh, you know the lies go around the earth three times before the truth puts its boots on. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm still thinking I mean, he has ideas often that are worth looking at. Like, uh, um, if you want to look, here's a broad theme which I haven't seen taken up in Christianity, <laughs> which is. Uh, um. Okay. How did Richard Carrier? Um, I'm not. It seems like I'm going to change the subject radically, but I'm not. I'm on Richard Carrier and what he's doing. I mean, his big point in the early to late aughts, uh, where he was taking on the resurrection argument, is something like, "Well, I don't care how unlikely." the various atheist theories of Jesus's resurrection and, you know, the wrong tomb theory and the, they stole the body theory. I don't care if you show all of them are highly improbable. The probability that God exists in the first place. It's a Bayesian argument is so small that your resurrection argument still doesn't work. Okay. So that's Richard Carrier. And that's an academic point, which is worth discussing. uh, And um, which I've thought about, well, how do you, how would uh, Christians address that question? Uh, we can get into that if you want, because uh, I, I think the way you build a cumulative case for um, Christianity, um, you would start there, and that uh, there's certain weaknesses in the design argument that you can address for that, which go along the same um, argument, which you can address with uh, an argument for transcendence, like the cosmological argument. Okay, so that's a great argument. Okay, that carrier Richard Carrier point is worth doing, and I guess he abandoned that and moved on. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Then he went into the Jesus doesn't exist argument. Well, you said he's a Jesus mythicist, and I guess Bart Ehrman has been trying to set him correct ever since.
1: Yeah, there's there's like Uh, there's him um, and uh, another scholar that are mythicists. There's not maybe five people in that cadre of scholars. Um,
2: Yeah, now that fits in there in an interesting way. By the way, I don't know how you explain the Jewish part of the Christian church in the first century unless Jesus existed. That that seems like the knockdown, uh, well, genuine knockdown argument against uh, that. But we don't need to go there. I don't want to go no, there. No. I'm not covering <laughs> that topic anyway. Let's, uh, but I'm saying, and then now he's into UFOs and stuff. <laughs> well, I don't, I <laughs> He's getting increasingly away it's, from, uh, it's not helping him in terms of respect in the academic community if that's the direction. It's not. It's not. It's stay, not. stay on the good points that you had early on. Right. Right,
1: right. Now, um, let's get into a little bit of, of this debate. I know it's six or seven years old now, but I think it's still relevant for the, the, sure. the uh, apologetics and, and Christianity and the cosmos and the naturalism-theism debate. This debate was not a theism-naturalism debate, but what was more likely, uh, is God more likely uh, to be the, the cause of the universe? And it's a very detailed in terms of a very technically detailed presentation of a naturalistic view of the universe and a theistic view of the universe. And Dr. Carroll in his opening speech trails off into a sub-debate that really was not the topic, and Bill kind of holds him to the fire here. He's, you know, Sean's off into why is theism even less probable? He goes into arguments against theism, and Bill's like, that's not what the context of the debate was. But it does have some rhetorical benefit for Sean that presenting something to the audience, he slips that in there. And here's why theism isn't isn't probable. And he says throughout the debate that theism is not well
0: defined. Here is a photograph from the Hubble Space Telescope of a few hundred out of the hundreds of billions of galaxies in our observable universe. The theistic explanation for cosmological fine-tuning asks you to look at this picture and say, I know why it's like that. It's because I was going to be here, or we were going to be here. But there is nothing in our experience of the universe that justifies the kind of flattering story we like to tell about ourselves. In fact, I would argue that the failure of theism to explain the fine-tuning of the universe is paradigmatic. It helps understand the other ways in which theism fails to be a better theory than naturalism. What you should be doing over and over again is comparing the predictions or expectations under theism to under naturalism. You find that over and over again, naturalism wins. And I'm going to zoom through these. It's not the individual arguments that are important. It's the accumulated effect. If theism were really true, there's no reason for God to be hard to find. He should be perfectly obvious, whereas in naturalism, you might expect people believe in God, but the evidence to be thin on the ground. Under theism, you'd expect that religious beliefs should be universal. There's no reason for God to give special messages to this or that primitive tribe thousands of years ago. Why not give it to anyone? Whereas under naturalism, you'd expect different religious beliefs, inconsistent with with each other, to grow up under different local conditions. Under theism, you'd expect religious doctrines to last a long time in a stable way. Under naturalism, you'd expect them to adapt to social conditions. Under theism, you'd expect the moral teachings of religion to be transcendent, progressive, sexism is wrong, slavery is wrong. Under naturalism, you'd expect that they reflect, once again, local mores, sometimes good rules, sometimes not so good. You'd expect the sacred texts under theism to give us interesting information. Tell us about the germ theory of disease. Tell us to wash our hands before we have dinner. Under naturalism, you'd expect the sacred text to be a mishmash, some really good parts, some poetic parts, and some boring parts and mythological parts. Under theism, you'd expect biological forms to be designed. Under naturalism, they would derive from the twists and turns of evolutionary history. Under theism, minds should be independent of bodies. Under naturalism, your personality should change if you're injured, tired, or you haven't had your cup of coffee yet. Under theism, you'd expect that maybe you can explain the problem of evil. God wants us to have free will. But there shouldn't be random suffering in the universe. Life should be essentially just. And at the end of the day, in theism, you basically expect the universe to be perfect. Under naturalism, it should be kind of a mess. This is very strong empirical evidence. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but I can explain all of that. I know you can explain all, so can I. It's not hard to come up with ex post facto justifications for why God would have done it that way. Why is it not hard? Because theism is not well defined. That's what computer scientists call a bug, not a feature.
3: Well, thank you, Dr. Carroll, for that vigorous interaction. In my opening speech, I argued that God's existence is significantly more probable given the evidence of contemporary cosmology than it would have been without it. And this is due to the support which cosmology lends to key premises in the cosmological and teleological arguments. Now, before we review those arguments, let me just say a word about Professor Carroll's uh, concluding remarks, which I believe are extraneous to tonight's discussion. He's very concerned to show that God's existence is improbable relative to certain non-cosmological data. For example, the problem of evil, our insignificant size, and so forth. The very fact that these are non-cosmological data shows that they are not relevant in tonight's debate. And I've addressed things like the problem of evil extensively, uh, for example, in philosophical foundations for a Christian worldview. So the debate tonight is not over the probability of theism versus naturalism. Uh, That would assess us, uh, requires to assess all sorts of non-cosmological data. Rather, the question is, is God's existence more probable given the data of cosmology, contemporary cosmology, than it would have been without it? And I think it certainly is. And I found that
1: to be problematic for his own point of view because I kept asking myself as I'm listening and, and you know, reading it, I'm like, well, what does he think he's arguing against? What is his definition of God? Uh, from your perspective, James, being there and hearing it and talking to Sean, was he borrowing from Bill's definition of God? Was he using a God of the philosophers? Where is Sean getting this idea of both theism and, and God from what you remember?
2: I don't know. It's like this mile wide and an inch deep um, type argument, like or almost a shotgun. Okay, try to deal with a hundred things at once.
1: Yeah,
2: or the where you are, and this is not uncommon in these discussions that we have. Um, uh, the, the and you're trying to pull them back. I said painstakingly, no. Let's look at one thing at a time and build. Okay, like, like that's why Kalam's a good place to start. Is there this transcendent creator we don't even know what the nature of the entity is yet let's just deal with can can the universe be self-contained or a brute factor mm-hmm. let's talk about that, that kind of, I, I i would say work we were talking past each other a lot in this debate mm. and and we uh it would have been uh, that, that's just the nature of the way these discussions go and we set up front um, if, if you really think this is, in, this is totally about whether we're in, totally insignificant or totally significant, the stakes are as high as they can get, right? So uh, now having this nice talk about, well, let's exchange ideas and see if we can ferret out the truth, but you're, you you don't end up in a healthy environment for doing that. And the other thing about debates, as great as they are, is, oh, okay, now you've got your 15 minutes and i got my 15 minutes. And you don't have enough time. Plus, these are all prepared to get through the points that you need. You know, especially if you're coming from such opposite directions. Mm. And I, I said that what I really remember about that because I was sitting there in the front row, and I'm, yeah, you know, I'm the main cosmology guy, even though I'm not uh, up there. Uh, you remember the other thing is remember there were six people at the debate. Right. So I met Kevin right. was also Alex Rosenberg and Robin Collins, and they talked a lot about the fine-tuning, and if you want to talk Mm -hmm. about that later. And they kind of faced off against each other, as I recall. Um, Okay, so, but Dr. Carroll went in this direction that, I said, well, I'm not interested in this direction. He's taking on the nature of causation and trying to say that all we do is measure patterns as scientists, which if you take, like, this purely pragmatic view and say, I'm not going to make any claims at all about what the metaphysics sort of uh are out there. That's kind of true about what physicists do, but he's making all kinds of metaphysical statements. He is. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so uh, it's really, Oh, great. Now you're locked into a discussion with Bill Craig about what the nature of causation. Okay. That's not cosm- cosmology is what I'm doing. That's what I was thinking. Okay. I'll let Bill handle uh, 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 the nature of uh, causation. Um, We can talk about that uh, also, uh, if you like. I think that there's a pretty good argument out there that comes from philosopher Robert Koons uh, and Alex Proust, a Christian philosopher, has used this a lot uh, about why we think that uh, you don't get Reasonless processes that happen yeah
1: and, I want yeah. let's 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 go there just in a, a, as simply as we can because one point that Sean makes in this debate is that his claim, which is metaphysical philosophical, is that we can't look at he's basically shooting down abductive reasoning in this sense he says, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he does make the point we can't apply, we're not allowed to apply. Our own understanding anthropologically of causation. Why is there coffee in the cup? Well, I just, I just pour, I just poured some, right? Uh, so there's a cause. Why is there coffee? I can, I can go back to a cause. And Sean says, you know, when it comes to the vacuum of space, right? The vacuum. Sorry, I just had it handy here. I've been vacuuming. So <laughs> when it comes to the vacuum of space, or, or, or the beginning of the universe, or what, what's out there? Sean is saying. You're not allowed to abductively reason about this because the vacuum of, of a quantum fluctuation is so unlike anything we know that we're not allowed to apply our abductive logical inferences to this. But, but, but you're but not. You know,
2: when you but get I'm into sorry. Like the Leibnizian argument, which Alex Proust defends, that's a metaphysical argument.
3: Mm-hmm. You're not
2: sitting here being pragmatic and about what's in our universe and what we can see and then trying to extend that outward. You're making purely metaphysical arguments. Mm-hmm. And the, the argument I like uh, is uh, from Coons is a, is a skeptical argument, which says, well, let's see what happens if you permit things to come into being without causes. And if that happens, you end up not being, a, I'll give you the, the, the short uh, answer. You, it makes it impossible to do science, which means... Mm-hmm that's our knowledge base that's where we generate knowledge from in the post-christian society right so mm. if i can't do science you just sawed off the branch you're sitting on so do you really want to make that argument uh, right. the uh, if it's possible to do science then you don't get reasonless processes that's-,
1: that's right i mean what's the what's the and, and 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 he says he said this a couple of times and um um where where it's like, that's the wrong question to ask about the universe. He he uses this phrase that I've heard him uh, and it's seen him write about in his blogs that asking where the universe comes from or why the universe exists, he calls it metaphysical baggage. And he says we should discard it. And so to me, I'm like, well, Dr. Carroll, how do you look at the universe as a cosmologist and a physicist? And, so
2: while I'm sitting there, sorry to interrupt, but. No, uh, that's fine. Um, I'm saying I'm not doing that. That's what I'm sitting there thinking in the audience. Stop trying to pigeonhole me. I'm trying to figure out what happened. I'm trying to sit here and think. Well, what kind of things could could is the could the universe just be sitting there hanging in eternity, uh, um, as just some you know block object, uh, or does it have to come into being? And if it uh, do, things need. Uh, uh, what about necessary versus contingent? In entities in, in metaphysics. And he's, he's trying to pigeonhole me uh, into some particular philosophy of how you do knowledge generation, which we'll call science. And I don't I end up not agreeing with him. This is why this debate went. I don't I end up not agreeing with any of his premises. So anything that comes after that is, you know, fruit from the, the bad tree, you know, so I don't care. It, it doesn't follow. Uh, so I mean, the whole point about Kalam is to painstakingly start at the beginning, and I'm not even asking the why question. Mm. I'm not not doing a why, and I'm
1: not,
2: I think the simplest form of the Kalam argument just asks if there is a cause, and it doesn't talk about what the nature of it is. That's a separate argument. And if you read uh, Dr. Craig uh, and, uh, and my article in The Black Ball Companion, the last part of that, are what we call corollary arguments that talk about what the cause may be. Mm. Okay. And it's, uh, you end up with, well, it must be very powerful. It must be that it must be capable of creating time. You know, it ends up with being that looks a lot like God mm-hmm. and what Thomas Aquinas would call God. Um, but, uh, the simple column argument itself isn't even asking this why question. It's just saying, you well, know, let's just name the premises uh, the first premise is that which begins to exist as a cause, and we'll call it a small c, not a capital C cause.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, and then the second premise the universe began to exist, therefore, the universe has a cause, and this is something which is transcendent, and I mean, not in a geographical sense,
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's not like the universe is over here and God is over here in heaven somewhere, and that's enough. You're actually not. Talking about, you're talking about an ontological sense. Mm-hmm. There's an entity which must transcend the universe itself.